This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, we're coming up on Halloween, and you know what? When Halloween comes around, there's something year after year we just just can't seem to resist. Mr. McMillan? I was working in the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the mash He did the monster mash It was a graveyard smash it caught on in a flash. He did the monster mash. Yeah, the fact of the matter is we just can't resist citing the monster mash by Boris Bobby Pickett. Because, well, I don't know. It certainly does have staying power, doesn't it? Although nothing is compelling me to do so, I, I think I have to confess that when I first heard that song, I, I thought it really was Boris Karloff. Which, I guess, is a tribute to the mimicry of Bobby Pickett. I believe when he passed a few years back, we we spent some time talking about him simply because, well, he's the guy that produced the Monster Mash. What, What can you say? Something else that our Los Angeles correspondent, David Rosenblum, might say is that it's high time Bobby Pickett got installed into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. David sent us a letter a couple weeks back noting that he was glad to see that Notorious B.I.G. was being considered for induction to the hall, even though he's a rapper. David represents the estates of numerous artists who he feels should be, uh, should be put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to provide, you know, a reason to go to Cleveland, Ohio. Are there others? I'm not sure. Oh, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to diss Cleveland, Ohio. It has given us many fruits. Let's see, the Cleveland Browns. I believe our good friend Donna Abadoni hails from Cleveland. Let's see, what else? Oh my goodness, Mr. Miller is holding up his chief Wahoo hat. I forgot, the Cleveland Indians. At any rate, we may bring David on next week's show to uh, to give a chance to explain his side of the story of why people like, according to him, Boris Bobby Pickett, along with Rudy Valley, and in David's opinion, Soupy Sales, all deserve consideration for the rock and roll Hall of Fame. That'll, that'll be an interesting conversation. Someone else we need to get back on this program is Dr. Andy Jones. Passing away this past week was the literary luminary Harold Bloom. My only intersection with Harold Bloom came when he wrote a book defending the authorship of Shakespeare's, deservedly being credited to that man from Stratford-on-Avon. We've been much amused by this controversy over the years. We take the position on this program, siding, I would note, with Derek Jacoby, Orson Welles, and Mark Twain, that it surely was not the guy from Stratford-on-Avon. But if we're going to talk about Harold Bloom, we need a professor of English to to actually have an intelligent discussion. So, Dr. Andy, if you're listening, call us. If you don't, we'll be calling you. I do want to note, according to his obituary, the the late Yale professor was a self-declared monster reader, described as being capable of devouring a 1,000 pages an hour. Well, I had to stop right there when I read that and do the math. 
60 seconds times 60 minutes is 3,600 seconds per hour. If you're going to go through 1,000 pages, you're going to be slipping pages at the rate of one page every 3.6 seconds. This does remind me of the Woody Allen speed reading course. Woody Allen proudly mentioned at one point in his comedy routine that he'd taken a speed reading course and uh, was able to read War and Peace in five minutes. He then added, it's about Russia. So one gets the impression that if Harold Bloom read War and Peace at the rate of a thousand pages an hour, he probably came away knowing that it too was about Russia. Quite the prickly figure, I understand, as I learn about him as I learn about him posthumously. He delighted in attacking feminists, multiculturalists, and African American literary scholars, lumping their politically aware work into what he termed the school of resentment. Supposedly, Yale Bloom railed against on-trend academics, and his championing of the English Romantic authors helped get them back on the curriculum in the 1960s. We do have to admire a man who says, I am your true Marxist critic, following Groucho rather than Karl. And as he said, taking as my motto, Groucho's grand admonition, whatever it is, I'm against it. One of the TV channels evidently played a Duck Soup uh, last week. And if I thought about it, I would have plugged it because you know, if you've never seen Duck Soup, well, you're missing one of the great comedies ever made. Groucho and also Harpo, Chico, and Zeppo at the top of their game. And I got to add that in, in their mocking of government and, and incompetent leadership, they were, well, let's just say, strangely prophetic, I would say. After all, it seems that quite a few nations of late um, are being ruled by people who we would have to regard as well, less than competent. And before we slide into the, uh, the dark, dank world of politics, let's see if we can find some good news items for today's show, shall we? We'd like to bring it to your attention that this week, Uranus is at opposition. Of course, there's several parts to this. First of all, the planet Uranus is correctly pronounced Uranus. So if you're on anybody who's trying to make a pun playing off of Uranus, well, smack them. In fact, if they're making puns of any sort, you, you probably should smack them. But no, uh, it just so happens that the sun, the earth, and Uranus are in a straight line this week, meaning that if you're in a place where the skies are truly dark and you have a good star chart, you will be able to see it with your naked eye. Mr. Will and I are going to give that a try, I, I think. He's very excited at this prospect. And from what I read in the papers, uh, California's bantamweight governor signed a bill a, a week or so ago that's going to ban smoking at California state parks and beaches, which is okay by me. Starting January 1st, it will be illegal to smoke cigarettes, cigars, pipes, vaping devices, quote, or any other lighted or heated tobacco or plant product intended for inhalation on any state beach or in any state park in California. Violators face fines of $25. Of course, now that I've read the article and I realize that this is also going to apply to any plant product intended for inhalation, boy, I wonder if they're going too far. You know, if somebody's smoking marijuana 15 feet away, you know, it's just not the noxious fumes that tobacco represents. Of course, now that I think about it, a good cigar is not like a cigarette either. Oh, well... As they say, the law is the law, or will be on January 1st. 
They also sometimes say the law is an ass, which I think is also a fair statement. And if you are planning to go out uh, and, and do some stargazing in reference to our the, the piece we just mentioned, uh, and I hope you are, you may want to take note of something that just warms my heart to read from the Washington Post, a piece by Aaron Williams, noting that America's largest astronomical viewing facility wants to share the cosmos with everybody. Unlike most research observatories, the Oregon Observatory encourages aspiring astronomers to get an eyeful through its scopes. A typical night draws 12 to 15 visitors, but uh, the author of this piece earlier this year drove a half hour from Bend to Sun River to attend a stargazing party that drew a bigger crowd. Anyway, that's something to think about. Something else we may need to think about is how we can deal with our stress about climate. Currently in California, we are experiencing just picture-perfect, beautiful weather. Except for the fact that we're also experiencing some bursts of high wind velocities. Since it has not rained in California for the past six months, which is pretty much our usual, this has become a terrible fire season year after year. I was in Sacramento a couple days back and experienced a wind gust that I'm sure, I'm sure it must have been 60 or 70 miles an hour. I mean, it was a bit scary. This giant pecan tree was being bent way the heck over. I don't know about you, dear listener, but if you're a California native, as, as am I, you remember that it used to rain in October. It used to rain sometimes in September. Not every year, but more often than not. And, you know, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of the last time we had a good deluge in October in like the last decade or so. And yes, I think our woes in California do have something to do with global warming, but whether they do or do not, a lot of us are concerned about climate change. There's a piece in New Scientist magazine by Penny Sarchett titled Stressed About the Climate that uh, has some advice for all of us. To quote from the piece, if the prospect of climate change makes you stressed, anxious, or depressed, you aren't alone. With reports of some children becoming terrified by climate change and the protest group Extinction Rebellion holding grief-tending workshops, there's an increasing awareness of so-called eco-anxiety. In London... On October 19th, the UK Council for Psychotherapy met to discuss how to best manage such anxieties. There's little quantitative evidence about eco-anxiety, but here's eight approaches that the speakers suggested might help us. Number one, live more in alignment with your values. We consume much more than we need, and it's not making us happy. I think we can agree. Uh, so, you can eat less meat and dairy, you can drive less, you can stop buying and disposing of so many items. That is an option. Two, you can give your home an energy health check. Household energy use accounts for 14% of total greenhouse gas emissions, at least in the UK. I imagine it's about the same here in the US. So yes, you can draft-proof your windows, use more insulation, etc. That can help. Number three, you can cut back on flying. Apparently, the Swedes have developed a concept for this. They're calling it flightscom, flight shame. Turns out a minority of people is responsible for the lion's share of emissions from flights, stands to reason. A 2014 analysis found that 15% of adults in Great Britain accounted for 70% of flights taken. So it is those who take three or more flights a year who will make the most difference by cutting back. Again, something we can do, fly a little less. Fourth piece of advice, however, is don't feel ashamed. In a discussion of flag scam, the environmental writer and activist Emma Maris noted that billions of people fly. 
She notes, my individual actions are not actually capable of solving climate change. The systems in which we are all enmeshed essentially force us to harm the planet, and yet we put all that shame on our own shoulders. That shame is not helping anybody. Fifth piece of advice, you can focus on changing systems, not yourself. In this, they suggest we do things like lobby the government, lobby corporations. Makes sense. Sixth piece of advice from this meeting was you can find like-minded people. If you get together with people who are of your mind on this, well, good things are possible. Seventh piece of advice was you can protect and nurture local green spaces. They note that getting involved in community environmental projects may help your mental health as well as being good for the planet. We all know that green spaces uh, cool down urban areas and uh, absorb carbon dioxide. What about composting? This article doesn't mention that, but it seems to me that if you take uh, things and put them in your compost pile and put the compost into the soil, well, I think a certain of it's going to stay sequestered for a while. And in my opinion, good would surely come of keeping carbon sequestered for even, you know, a few decades. And the last piece of advice that came out of this conference in London was you should bring others with you. They note that just talking about the practical things we can all do in our day-to-day lives gives people back some sense of control, which, you know, can improve our mental well-being. I know all that stuff is pretty general, but I think there's a, a takeaway in that, yeah, Flagsham, <laughs> flight shame, and, and, and putting the world on our shoulders probably isn't, uh, isn't helping us. Shame is not always a very helpful emotion. Although I would note that it's, it's managed to work for quite a long time for both the Jewish and Catholic religions. Anyway, this isn't exactly a good news item. I, I guess it is. It's such an oddball item that I'm considering a good news item. Here's the story. According to New Scientist, a normally healthy 46-year-old man began to experience mental fogginess, dizziness, and memory loss in 2001, and he had to give up his job. He saw multiple doctors who couldn't work out what was wrong with him. A psychiatrist prescribed him antidepressants in 2014. Naturally, that's what psychiatrists do. But uh, he wasn't getting anywhere. A few months later, he was arrested for erratic driving. His blood alcohol level was 200 milligrams per 1,000 milliliters which would work out to 0.20, the way we measure here in California, which means, you know, you're drunk. You've had like 20 drinks. The man tried to assure the police he had not been drinking, and as you might imagine, they didn't believe him. Somewhere along the way, the man found his way to a gastroenterologist, who who discovered high levels of a fungus called Saccharomyces cerevisiae in his stool. That fungus is better known to us as Brewer's yeast. This is because both winemakers and beer manufacturers alike use it to convert carbohydrates into alcohol. Subsequent testing evidently confirmed that this is what was happening in the man's gut. Every time he ate carbohydrates, his blood alcohol level shot up, sometimes to as high as 400 milligrams per 100 milliliters. 0.4. You know, a level like that would, would, would render a person unconscious, virtually comatose. That, that's, that's, that's high. In 2017, the man attended a specialist clinic at Richmond University Medical Center in New York where he was diagnosed with, quote, auto-brewery syndrome. New scientist notes that this case of auto-brewery syndrome was probably triggered by prolonged courses of antibiotics the man took back in 2011 for a thumb injury. It's speculated that the antibiotics disrupted the man's balance of gut microbes, causing abnormal growth of brewer's yeast, which apparently normally exists at low levels in most of our guts. 
It was a Dr. Fahad Malik who made the diagnosis, and he and his colleagues are apparently the first to describe auto-brewery syndrome resulting from antibiotic use. But it has been reported in people with gut disorders like Crohn's disease, most commonly due to the overabundance of other fungi. Malik treated the man with antifungal medications, also used probiotics and a low-carb diet to get rid of the excess brewer's yeast in his gut, and reportedly, he's now been symptom-free for almost two years. All right, now, two points from this. Please don't go out and purchase brewer's yeast in an effort to brew your own liquor internally. It's probably not going to work. And, and if it did work, it's clear from this case, it isn't, it isn't a good thing. And number two, if you've had too much to drink, for God's sakes, don't get behind the wheel. We are positive that the police are not going to buy <laughs> your attempt at using auto brewery syndrome to get off the hook. And doggone it, it shouldn't. At this point, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think we'll do two rounds of this game. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for having the last laugh when it was revealed that mourners at an Irishman's funeral were startled by the sound of knocking and a voice of the deceased bellowing, Let me out! It's effing dark in here! as his coffin was being lowered into the grave. Horror turned to mirth when they realized that Shea Bradley had recorded the prank plea before he died. And it was a bad week also last week for... Well, I'm not sure whether it's race relations or political correctness, but a University of Washington professor is calling out SpongeBob SquarePants for, quote, racist, violent, colonial practices, unquote. Yes, apparently UW professor Holly Barker argues that the cartoon sponge, who lives in the fictional underground town of Bikini Bottom, symbolically perpetuates, quote, the violent and racist expulsion of indigenous peoples, unquote, from the real-world Bikini Atoll, once used by the U.S. for nuclear testing, and thus, quote, desensitizes viewers to the violence of settler colonialism, unquote. Now, I hope we're not being, you know, insensitive to some, you know, sad situations out there in the real world. What happened on Bikini Atoll was a travesty. But keep in mind that that atomic test uh, did give us that word that's not part of the language, the bikini. So I don't know. I think Radio Parallax needs to go out on a limb here and suggest that we do not think that, for example, wearing a bikini in any way desensitizes people to the violence of settler colonialism. And by the way, we are against settler colonialism. And speaking of sensitivity, we'd have to say that it was an ugly week for that last week with the news that a 12-year-old Kansas girl has been charged with a felony after making a finger gun hand gesture at four classmates. The middle schooler reportedly was handcuffed by police and now faces up to a year in a juvenile detention facility. Said the girl's mother, Vanessa McCarran, I could see maybe a good round of counseling, but handcuffs? You know, sometimes when we come across items like that, I think, you know, I should go check Snopes on this one and hope that it's not true. 
But we've noticed over the years that The Week magazine generally does some pretty decent fact-checking, unlike, for example, the Trump administration, which I guess probably does require alternative facts-checking. And speaking of Trump, it turns out that it was a good week this week for tolerance. After a new poll shows that 72% of white evangelical Protestants now believe that a person who commits, quote, immoral personal acts, unquote, can serve effectively in public office. That figure has skyrocketed for some odd reason from a mere 30% in 2011. Yes, it's now at 72% from 30. And it was a bad week this week for what we'd have to call American math education with the news that an Oklahoma judge, Thad Balkman, admitted miscalculating a portion of the huge judgment against Johnson & Johnson for contributing to that state's opioid crisis. The figure of $107.6 million should have only been $107,600, according to Judge Balkman, who added, that's the last time I used that calculator. Well, I have to pause right here to recall a quote that came from, I think it was the, the bad guy's quote book. In fact, hold on, let me pull it off the shelf. Yes, from the chapter in that book titled, Who, Me? Which certainly applies to this Oklahoma judge. We have the following quote, and the setup on this is that it came from Herbie Sperling, a criminal who was asked by police on the meaning of two pistols and an axe used in three murders being found in the trunk of his rented car. Said Mr. Sperling, damned if I know, you could be effing sure I'll never rent no car from Avis again. Yeah, you you can bet I'm not going to use no calculator from Texas Instruments again. And it was an ugly week last week for Venus the goddess of love, with the news that Procter & Gamble has agreed to remove the Venus femininity symbol from the packaging of its menstruation products in response to complaints from trans activists. Procter & Gamble has explained that activists have helped it understand that not everyone who has a period and needs to use a pad identifies as a female. P&G will now use a new wrapper design that does not have the feminine symbol. I think we'd have to punt on this one to Larry David. He's making fun of that Campbell's soup product on one of his shows some years back that had that uh, singing slogan. How you gonna handle a hungry man? The manhandlers. No, Radio Parallax is calling out for an interface between Larry David and trans activists, because I think think some magic could come out of that. And, And by the way, oh, And by the way, why was a University of Washington professor watching SpongeBob SquarePants? I don't know. Sometimes here at Radio Parallax, we just have trouble finding outrage at some of the things going on out there when there are so many more outrageous things deserving of our outrage, such as the terrifying power of Jeff Bezos. We do hope, by the way, dear listener, that you caught the beginning of the new season of Silicon Valley. I think it's even funnier than Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm. The show got off to quite a uh, bang-up start when uh, Richard, the founder of the mythical Pied Piper, testified before Congress in a manner, well, that it it did Mark Zuckerberg one better, let's put it that way. Because unlike Zuckerberg going up there and hemming and hawing, Richard went out and just said, no, you're not going to rein in these companies. What are you going to do? They're they're ruling the world. Anyway, one of the subplots um, in the series... Amazon has purchased a, a tech company called Hooli, in which the mythical CEO, Gavin Belsom, 
when played hilariously by actor Matt Ross, tries to push back against Bezos, he finds that certain cost-cutting measures had to be incurred by what's left of Hooli, such as the fact that they were ripping the logo off the outside of the building and replacing it by with, with El Pollo Loco, from which Hooli was then to rent space. Anyway, funny little interlude, but uh, writing about Jeff Bezos in The Atlantic, Franklin Foer, a man we would very much like to bring on this program, said that the scope of Amazon's empire is without precedent in the long history of American capitalism. Pretty strong words. Said Mr. Foer, today, if Marxist revolutionaries ever seized power in the U.S., they could nationalize Amazon and call it a day. The company controls nearly 40% of all e-commerce in the U.S. It conducts more product searches than Google. It controls almost half of the cloud computing industry. It serves everything from Netflix to the Central Intelligence Agency. Let that sink in. It's responsible for 42% of all books sold in the U.S. and a third of the market for streaming video. It has collected the world's most comprehensive catalog of consumer desire and assembled a vast global logistics business. Last year, Amazon didn't pay one cent of federal tax on the $11.2 billion it made in profits. When people talk about how Washington's getting a little bit upset with the tech industry, well, (laughs) um, there's some reasons for that. How can it be that Amazon pays nothing in federal taxes? Noted Franklin Foer, the government rewards this failure with massive contracts that will make the company even bigger. This is both reason to marvel and to cower. Charles Duhigg, writing in The New Yorker, noted that for some entrepreneurs, Amazon has been a godsend. More than 1.9 million small businesses in the U.S. use Amazon services. Last year, 200,000 sellers earned at least $100,000 each on the site, but others fear the company has made a pronounced shift towards simply selling everything as fast and cheaply as possible. Critics say that Amazon uses the data it collects from customers to divine which products are poised to become blockbusters and then copies them, which Amazon denies. Its rush to make delivery even faster has taken a heavy toll on employees and contractors. There have been at least 60 serious or fatal accidents involving Amazon since 2015. And, uh, you know, I got to say, this keeping track of what we're doing is, is getting a little out of control. My phone asked me to review the Japanese restaurant I went to in Santa Rosa a week or so ago. How did my phone know I ate at the restaurant? Well, it, it evidently tracked me through its GPS functions and realized that I spent enough time in the restaurant to have had a meal. I think we should be concerned about phone tracking, especially with the news that Sam Schneider, writing in the Wall Street Journal, notes that political parties are, quote, increasingly tapping into this new source of data. Campaigns can track potential voters based on apps they use and places they have been, including rallies, churches, and gun clubs. The data can be traced to specific persons, allowing campaigns to determine who gets a fundraiser call or knock on the door. Among the earliest to try this approach was Beto O'Rourke, whose Senate campaign in 2018 hired a company that, quote, collected the unique ID numbers of phones and pinged their location, unquote, while at a rally, then matched IDs with email addresses. A political action committee supporting President Trump has also been using a company that employs location data gathered from phones to send targeted ads. Anyway, we kind of expect this sort of stuff from the Trump campaign, but uh, 
Robert Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, there's something about an Irishman named Robert O'Rourke who nicknames himself Beto because it sounds more Latin and then runs as a, with a Latin flavor as a candidate. If you had some doubts about voting for him since he got thumped by Ted Cruz, well, here's another reason. He's pinging your phone's location. Anyway, we need to take a short break, so uh, let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.